This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. Particularly, I think that full-time sales professionals will enjoy it. They will feel that it's supplementing other things that they've learned with an interesting twist. If you are an owner who sells and you have never invested in sales training for yourself, this $15 book on Amazon could be pretty significant change for you. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Welcome back to B2B Growth Hacks. I am so excited to kick off our new series, all about sales, and I am thrilled at the conversation we've crafted to open up this series. You guys, I have a treat for you. Today, I have Katherine Brown in the studio. She is a B2B sales expert and the founder of Extra Bold Sales. Katherine, thank you for coming in and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I love B2B and I am delighted to be asked. Perfect. Well, we are not going to waste any time. We're going to hit the ground running. So first, tell us a little bit about Extra Bold Sales and you and what you do for your clients. Great. Thank you. I do get called a sales consultant quite often, and occasionally I'll wear that hat. But really, this current chapter of my life with Extra Bold Sales is focused on sales training. And I have several industries I work in. They tend to be heavy in professional services. Just turns out that when people have services sales, they're a little bit more complicated because there's not always something to see. So that prospecting and qualifying and identifying whether something's really a marketing lead or a sales lead, those are helpful recommendations to people in those industries. So I do a lot of work in those industries. And then now with the launch of my new book, How Good Humans Sell, I'm doing more and more speaking and I'm enjoying that so much. So that's under the Extra Bold Sales banner as well. Amazing. So let me just start off by saying I connected with Catherine because of her book. I'm in the B2B sales realm and I was having, quite frankly, some challenges. So I picked up How Good Humans Sell, and it's been so impactful for me. So I can't say enough how much you should go check out this book, but we're going to dive into some big topics within the book and kind of in Catherine's experience that are going to kind of uncover some of the difficulties and layers to B2B sales that we may not realize exist. One of the most impactful lessons from this book that I think is so important for us to start out with is the negative connotation around sales. Catherine, tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, I wish that this weren't true. (laughs) (laughs) I wish this weren't true. And I have toyed with the idea of calling myself a reformed sales evangelist, but evangelist has a negative connotation to some people. But I really do want to change the way people think about selling because to me, sales is the success vehicle to that trip, on that trip of where you're trying to go. It can be a product or a service. And when the right product or service is put in the hands of the right buyer at the right time, it can be transformational for their business. And I really believe that. So that's why throughout the book, I have all kinds of crazy examples, everything from fuel injection systems to hot tubs, to financial services, to all kinds of coaching and consulting to real estate. And they all can be honorable and glorious things to be selling when you put the pieces together of why sales matter. So 
I imagine we'll get into it a little bit more, but to kick off the book, one of the things I wanted to do was test my theory. I feel like I still hear jokes about sales being sleazy and cheesy and negative, but I thought maybe this is particular only to a certain industry, or maybe I am attuned to hear the negative talk and I'm, I don't really have a representative sample. So I set up to do an anonymous survey. And so I did do research prior to the book where I surveyed a statistically significant sample of full-time business-to-business sales professionals. These are the kind of people that you and I would like to hire as our businesses get bigger and people sell for us full-time. I surveyed them and was crushed to find that my worst fears were true, which is that it's almost impossible to build a sales team where a significant percent of the population will not still be holding non-conscious and automatic negative views about selling. So that non-conscious and automatic is really important because if we think that it's conscious, then we won't catch ourselves repeating the actions that lead to certain results because we tend to act out of those beliefs and emotions. It's something that's deep in us. And so bringing that out and shining some light on that and saying these beliefs are costly is really important for all of us for our business growth. Yeah, absolutely. And there's several layers to that. You're dealing with the connotation that you have in your head as a sales professional and what you do. Is it an honorable job to have? But you're also dealing with the projection of external people and their perspectives and their negative connotation about what you do. Walking into a conversation, you're automatically, even when people are selling to me, I automatically am trying to figure out What are they really trying to get to? What's the catch here? Your mind just simply goes there without you even thinking about it. So there's so many layers to this really negative connotation to sales. And like you said, it impacts so much about how we do it, how we show up for it, what we believe about ourselves, how we feel about ourselves after we go home, how we made the person feel across the table from us. There's just so many layers that this impacts and I was kind of sad to read that too. <laughs> I, have to, I have to admit, I'm doing sales and the words that are associated with sales professionals, was it was heartbreaking. It was. So in the book, I have a word cloud. The word cloud exercises were done in workshops. I asked people to identify when they saw the word sales or salesman. I asked them to list the words that come to mind. And I didn't say it had to be adjectives or nouns or anything in particular. They could be movie references. They could be phrases. They could be full sentences, whatever people wanted. And in the book, I share what the most common words were that popped up again and again and again. The other thing that you're saying that I thought is interesting is that another piece of the research showed we listed seven professions And we asked people on a scale of one to 10, one being the least respectable and 10 being the most respectable, we asked people to independently rate seven vocations. And a sales professional was only one of the seven. Now, note that I said rate and not rank because you were supposed to independently say, for a doctor on a scale of one to 10, what do I think? For a lawyer on a scale one to 10, what do I think? But it looks like when I did the research that I asked them to rank them because sales was last. (laughs) Sales was last, even though I said rate. And so it could have landed anywhere, but it was seventh of people saying, of full-time sales, B2B professionals saying, 
I think on a scale of one to 10, the number 6.4, they said on a scale of respectability, I think my own profession is a 6.4. How? Yeah. So costly. It's so costly. Mm -hmm. I think we have to go there. What's at stake if we don't change this negative stereotype of sales? I mean, I think both for businesses, but also as sales professionals, what's at stake here if we don't get a whole handle on this? Well, it's been well documented that there is a worldwide shortage of great salespeople. So you don't see younger professionals going into it or they're very reluctant. There are some universities that are starting to make that be part of their programming, but not very many. Sales is something people fall into. It's not something that they volunteer for. And they do it reluctantly only when they can't get something else often. So that's a shame because that perpetuates the issue. I think the other thing that is at stake, I'm thinking about your listeners and how we have people who are solopreneurs all the way through executives of large companies. And the smaller the company you are, the more likely that as an owner, you ought to be spending a significant portion of your week in revenue generating activities. I define that in the book as initiating with people, doing those actions that will eventually lead to sales calls. And there's no one else to do this for you, so you need to do it. So if this is your least favorite part of the work and you keep putting it off, there's a lot at stake because your business literally might not make it. Businesses don't close because people didn't have good ideas. Mm. They close because they didn't sell enough business. So all those small business administration statistics that we know about what percent of entrepreneurs really make it, what percent of businesses make it after the first year, after two years, after five years, is related to sales. So that's very sobering. Now, the good news is, and I talk about mindset in the book, there's wonderful research that's been done by Dr. Carol Dweck. So if you can develop a growth mindset about how you can change and get better at this, actually, it's not that difficult to sell pretty well. I give you a path to do it. I talk about key questions to ask in the process. It's actually not that difficult to be a passable sales professional if you commit to learning and believe you can Yeah, I'd like to go further even then talking about growth mindset and really kind of, I love the positive spin that you've put onto sales and really redefining what it is and being a solution provider and being a helper. Dive into that for me a little bit though, the positive nature of sales and why it's absolutely an honorable job to have. Yes. So I actually don't have this diagram in the book, but I think many of your readers will remember this. If you think about a psychology 101 class you've had, or maybe you've seen this referenced in an article, I like to reference Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So coming out of the pandemic, we see, for example, that people are operating at fairly low function. They're trying to deal with their security and basic needs met. The first couple levels of the pyramid are about food and shelter and survival and, and basic safety and things like that. But once those are addressed and we have the privilege and wonderful fact that in the West, most people have most of those things addressed all the time. Then we move up the pyramid and we're moving toward this personal transformation and what he calls self-actualization. When you realize that whatever product or service you sell can be a tool to helping that person move up the pyramid, then it gives so much purpose and so much life to the work you're doing. So one of the ways I help people get there and think through that is the MVP list. I call it the motives and values power list. The idea is that you might sell a widget. Let's say you sell a widget that goes on rigs in oil and gas. 
The widget, though, is a means to an end for the buyer. And what we have to understand about our buyer is what do they think is at stake when they evaluate the widget? How are they going to look if they pick you as a company? How are they going to feel if they pick you as a company? How do they feel connected to you as a salesperson? Do they feel safe? Do they feel like this is going to internally elevate their status if they find you as a new provider who has a better widget? These are all emotional considerations that people are making automatically when they're evaluating you. It could be when they read your information from a marketing standpoint. It could be literally while you're talking. It could be as they listen to you on a podcast. It could be any number of ways, but they're thinking, if I identify myself with this person, how will it go for me? So when you realize how much power you have for good, now we can misuse our power for bad too, but when you realize I am the deliverer of this success tool in this person's life by selling the widget, then now you're doing much more than selling a widget. It gets to people's larger purpose of their life. It gives your life more purpose. It's a tool in this much bigger picture. And I think that that's so awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who doesn't want to be helpful? Who doesn't want to provide value? And I think this negative connotation of sales is kind of evolved because we're selling things we don't believe in. Mm. And if you're selling something you don't believe in, you don't feel good about selling it to anyone else. You yes. don't feel like you did them a service. You yes. actually feel the opposite. I've done you a disservice. Even though I got this, this really might not be helpful for you. Or several yes. different questions that you've crafted in your head, <laughs> yes. your, your psychology at work there Yes, around that. I think that there are people who, for whatever reason, have taken positions that just might have felt like they had to, whatever the reason, they're selling something they don't believe in. I do think that's true. I think, I have to go test this now with some research, but <laughs> I, my theory, I haven't tested this yet, but my theory is that there's actually many people who are more ambivalent than anything else. And then it's the responsibility if they hear this and can put this into action, that's wonderful. And if they are an employer and they have a team that might feel this way, it's the responsibility of the employer to ask those questions and say, what is the MVP list for this product or service? Because once people have it explained to them, they say, oh, now I see what I really sell. So a way we could get at that, do you want to do our exercise about the what do I sell, what do I really sell? Okay. Would that yeah. be okay? Okay. So this is something that people can do with their teams. So one of the questions I ask sometimes that is good to open up workshop session or to do with corporate training is I'll say, let's have a conversation first. I'm going to ask you question number one, what do you sell? And most people, occasionally you'll meet someone who already knows where this conversation is going and they'll jump to question two, but most of the time they'll say, I sell accounting solutions or I sell this or I sell that. So for your company, then I would ask you, what would be some of the ways you would answer that basic question? What do you sell? So we sell an A to Z all-in podcasting solution. It consists of launching your podcast, managing your podcast, producing digital assets associated with getting your podcast up and running and keeping it professional and on time. Awesome. That's amazing. I mean, it's like, Outsourcing all of that sounds wonderful. <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you the second question, which gets at why people really buy. So question number two is, great, what do you really sell? So just start rattling stuff off. There's no wrong answer, but it's the brainstorming that gets people to start to get to the magic. Yeah, we sell thought leadership, 
we sell a way and a strategy for people to really find their people, to find their community mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. using their podcast. Mm-hmm. We sell legacy, the idea that you are documenting important, profound conversations that live on past you. Mm, that's cool. Exactly. So I'm literally off the top of my head thinking of more things you sell, but I'm thinking about my future hope of doing podcasts at some point. What would motivate me to do that? Well, I think you're also selling an easy path because mm-hmm. this feels hard. All the tech, yeah, the planning, sure. it's a lot of work. I know it's a lot of work. So you're selling a simple path for something that's actually rather complex. I think you sell confidence because you're saying, I'll take care of those pieces that sound difficult for you and I'll make it, again, as easy as possible. You sell access that you get me in front of more people. What else, just chime in if you think of more things, but you see how this list gets longer and longer. Like, what do you really sell? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that the things that you're saying are the things that clients have already identified to me about why they've chosen us. Mm. Oh, it feels so much better to show up and know that you guys have this part of this mm-hmm. handled mm-hmm. so that I don't have to think about it. And actually, that is something that I do routinely say when I'm talking to potential prospects mm-hmm. is we take care of this part of it so that you can do the thing we can't, which is show up confidently as the expert in your field. We could never do that. Right. And so there's a security element to that. Like a lot of people, it's interesting, there's some research that has been done that shows that in general people, about half the population is motivated toward promotion and about half is very prevention driven. So literally, how do you wake up in the morning? What's a driver for you? Are you the proverbial glass half full or glass half empty? And the population's actually split pretty much in half. So I kid with my husband because he's very prevention oriented. He's a statistician. He's a numbers person. He's a researcher. And he was going to be an engineer. And you want bridge engineers to be prevention oriented because you want that bridge. You want them to think about every possible thing that could go wrong and not take any risks. But that orientation toward prevention, it's going to be a challenge in other professions or maybe in some things personally or or with relationships. Similarly, promotion serves people, say, in marketing, sales, speaking, things like that. But you don't want to be immune to risks and minimize the fact that there are real risks. So depending on the person that's buying from you, there's aspects to that MVP list of how I look, how I feel, that is appealing, some will be appealing to some prospects and some will be appealing to others, depending on their orientation. For a prevention-oriented person, they would say, I like that I feel secure that I'm not going to mess this up. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mess up my podcast. That would be embarrassing. When I hear embarrassing, I think status. Mm-hmm. So those are, to me, when you start to understand that you have all of this power to listen carefully, ask thoughtful questions and understand where this person is trying to go with their goals and that what you sell is a means to that end so much bigger than selling a widget that goes on the rig. Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of brings me to another thing I'd like to discuss, which is getting down to a vulnerable enough place with your prospect to uncover some of these big Topics. Honestly, let me just be frank. It feels a little rah rah for me as Mm. a female coming Mm -hmm. in asking, How do you feel about that? How do you? There is a power struggle for sure. I think being a female sales professional that sometimes I don't want to compromise on. 
However, I realized that it's so important to get down to the real values and motives that my prospect values. Yes. So what can you tell us about that? How do we have these more vulnerable, uncovering, educational conversations with our prospects and uncover some of those layers? Yes, those are really thoughtful questions. I appreciate that. One of the things we know about emotional intelligence research is that some people literally don't know how they feel and some people know how they feel, but they cannot express it. Mm. And then there's people who know how they feel and or can express it, but can't read it in others. <laughs> so there's all these layers to yeah. what EQ means. So again, remembering just like the promotion prevention, we don't know this person when we're first interacting. So we don't know what they're even able. It's not, I think sometimes people think that their prospects are holding out on them. Yeah. But I think that that's assuming the wrong thing because sometimes people don't even know what they want. I assume when people contact me, for sales training, and we talk about me speaking on a certain topic or doing a series inside of a company, I assume that they have some idea of what brought them to me, but that to some extent, they don't really know what they want. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. What I mean is that anytime you shop for something that's outside your own expertise, you don't know what to ask. Yep. And it's our job as a guide, I talk about that in chapter eight of the book, this idea of being a guide with that metaphor of saying, I actually have walked this path before, I'm ahead of you in this particular domain, just in this particular domain, right? There's lots of things you know about water and engineering than I do because you sell the solution to water treatment plants or whatever. There's things that I don't know that you know, but in this area... I have a lot of expertise in this domain. So I'm going to ask thoughtful questions that will get you to start to explore this question of what do you really want? Because I think we just don't even always know what we really want. So I do use a filling question very judiciously. I would say not that often, but I am wanting people to share what they feel by asking it a different way. So I share this in the book. I do like in a discovery call to me when I'm selling B2B and we're going to have a phone call, video call, or face-to-face. -face, my first objective is to start to understand their goals. And my second objective in that very first call is to understand, is this really a marketing lead or is this a sales lead? And that is driven by timing. So I'm referring now for those people who have gotten to look at the book or who listen to this later, this is about the five magic topics. So I always open with goals if I can, because you can frame it something like this. This is the start of a call. Let's say you give me a referral. I know they're a referral from you, but I don't know very much about them besides what I read on the website. And so I say, Susie, it's so great to visit with you. I know that we've been introduced by a mutual friend. Would you mind, before I start talking and take us in a direction that may not be where you want to go, can you give me a little bit of context about why you wanted to take this call? I like the word context. That can take them in a direction of, we're right here in the middle of a search. We're just beginning to think about it. I am firing one of your competitors. There's all these different things they could say to get at that. And then when we ask things like, tell me more, say, I'm curious with the follow-up question, that then starts to crack the door on feeling kind of words. That's how I get to it. And because I sincerely love people, I'm not manipulating them. I am selling for their good. And the other reason I'm such a fan of a short discovery call is because the minute I realize that I'm not the right person to help them, 
I want to refer that to someone that I know can. And so I also am conscious of their time and my time and not wanting to stay on the phone just because we had 30 minutes scheduled. If we're 18 minutes and we know it's going to result in a referral, then let's go ahead and do that and move on. So and starting to ask about what else they've tried to get where they're trying to go and getting them to share some things about their goals, we'll start to get at those feeling words. I love that. I love how authentic that feels and honest that feels. That makes me feel like I'd be selling like a good human. And I think that's really what we're trying to get down to is I don't want to step too forward too fast Mm -hmm. and make the person I'm talking to uncomfortable. I want them to feel open to tell me their value points, their pain points without making them feel as if I'm trying to leverage that in a way that feels icky. And so I think tactfully approaching those conversations is important. And I love the starting points you gave Mm. and some of the words. I think that's so helpful. Tell me a little bit about, we were talking about belief versus profit, uh, process, sorry. Mm -hmm. We were talking about belief versus process. And we talked through how this distribution is not Kind of where we think it is. Talk me through those two words, this theory that you have and how it applies to sales. Okay, great. So pretty early in the book, I have those of you that are visual people, you can imagine a circle. And I have this simple diagram of a circle and there's a line right down the middle and the left side says beliefs and the right side says process. And what I'm saying is the circle is everything that it takes to have sales success. And I wrestled for a while with where does the line go? (laughs) Is it straight down the middle? Do I really think it's 50-50? And this is something that is borne out somewhat by the research that I share early in the book that we referred to earlier in this episode. And then also it's anecdotal. I've seen my clients struggle with lots and lots and lots of sales training gives a brief nod to beliefs, but it's very process-oriented. And that's because They want you to have a several-step process that you prospect, qualify, and close people, and then probably maybe asking for a referral as a part of that process or not. And they want it to integrate inside your CRM. Or you're thinking about a sales process tied to something with sales enablement automation. So people tend to be process-oriented when they think of sales training because People do need steps. What I observed, and I share this inside How Good Humans Sell in one of the opening chapters, I share that prior to doing my sales training, I ran a business-to-business telemarketing firm. It's basically a staffing agency that provided great contract B2B sales resources on loan to other companies. And those prospects for that business would say to me, Catherine, we've got a great team. I have wonderful producers. I have great account managers. We have a volume problem. We just need more leads. If you gave us more qualified leads, we'll be great. So that's why I'm buying this from you. And I said, great, and I would happily do it. But over and over and over and over again, I would find that it was actually beliefs that kept people from taking what were good meetings and carrying them through a lengthy B2B sales process all the way to closure. Where would beliefs pop up? I'll give you an example. First of all, I don't like to send proposals. Let me just put that out there. I try not to send proposals if I can keep from doing it because people don't like to read proposals. So if I can send a simple draft contract, that's my preference. But sometimes in very complex things, some of your audience 
sells super complex stuff that it has to do an RFP and there's a federal or state element. I understand sometimes it's required. If you send over an RFP and you don't have a date set to walk through your answers, or let's say it's not a federal RFP, but it's just your company proposal, you're missing an opportunity if you don't insist on a time to discuss that and make that a call to action as part of your sales steps, because otherwise then you start chasing them again. But let's say you didn't know better and you sent that over and you thought the opportunity was qualified, you sent the proposal, you gave them two good choices, you're happy with either of them, and then you start to feel like they ghost you. Mm -hmm. This happens to people all day long, every day. What you believe about sales, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about the company, and what you start to infer about your prospect is what will affect the action that you take or don't take. And it's crazy to get this far in the process and have done all of that work and give up. But people do give up when they're at the proverbial 10-yard line because they start to create a story because they feel nervous because they're afraid of being perceived as too pushy. They start to say things to themselves like, they must have decided that they're not interested. Or maybe I was never a serious candidate and they're passing my proposal around internally comparing me to others. Now, those things could be true, but you don't have data that say that's true. You don't know that. So that is why I give beliefs 50% of the power in this equation because you can actually have very healthy beliefs and a pretty mediocre process and you'll probably be a pretty decent seller. But if you have great outline processes and low beliefs, you won't do the work. And so you won't implement that training that was provided. (laughs) Catherine just explained my life, y'all. This is is every day we make these assumptions and we live inside of our heads so much. And she's absolutely right. It stops us from taking Mm -hmm. a step forward, not Mm -hmm. just in sales, but even in our personal lives. If you think about the other relationships you have, your connotation or the story that you're telling yourself in your head prevents you from moving all the time. All the time. It impacts your next step, how you approach it, whether you think positively or negatively about it. There's so many reverberations that Mm -hmm. happen from not having a solid, logical approach to your beliefs and not living fear-driven or just in your head, I think. I think we tend to live there a lot. And it's out of some of the things. It's out of fear. It's out of insecurity. Mm -hmm. It's out of not wanting to be vulnerable, not wanting to be the pushy negative salesperson or the nagging wife or whatever story you're telling yourself that people may draft if you do X. Yes. And I think one of the ways, I like this term sales power because I really do mean power for good. But one of the things that can give a business owner who's the seller or account manager, BDR, SDR, things that give people sales power is understanding that all of those insecurities that you feel that now that we're illuminating this and bringing this to the light, we're saying, yeah, I do have some of that hesitation. So does your prospect. Mm. Every person is like this. Every person, I believe, every person struggles at some point with imposter syndrome. Every person deep down is walking around thinking, am I enough? Am I enough for this situation? And when you really believe that and start to shape a worldview that realizes that everyone's doing the best they can, but that we're like a little bit 
of a cracked cup, <laughs> right? When you realize that, then you can see what you offer and what you do. And even that first discovery call, you can see that as a way to love your neighbor even because I don't think that sales is a process that you memorize to persuade. I think sales is about making a match and having intelligent questions that get them the right thing of value for this moment in time that gets them where they're trying to go. It's part of why one of the benefits I have of being mid-age now, I think that's a really nice way of saying middle age, mid-age now, is that I have so many complimentary relationships. So I know all kinds of marketers and I know all kinds of sales consultants and all kinds of other sales training firms. And so the minute I get a sense that I'm not the right solution for someone, I see myself as a connector that then puts them on the right path. And that gives that also gives me sales power because see what happens is I'm not scared to get on a call ever anymore. Now, I do feel nervous sometimes to follow up. I still have to coach myself through the techniques we talk about in the book because if you're following up the fourth, fifth, sixth time, I mean, that does take some work to get yourself ready to do it. I'm never nervous for a first call anymore because I'm not invested in the outcome because I don't have enough information yet to be. And so I know that they are going to leave with value because I'm either going to send them in a different direction, we're going to create a path to continue to talk, or I'm going to make a whole other recommendation that will be valuable to them. And so I know I can provide value. And so I'm not scared. I'm just not scared. And I think if you define sales by persuasion, I've got to get this sale. It's got to be this way. There are some things people sell where it's a one-call close, but I suspect that for most of your listeners, we sell pretty complicated things. It's a relationship-building process, and so all we have to find out in that first meeting is, are we making a connection? Do I understand their goals so I know if we should keep talking, and do I have a clear next step? That's really all you have to do in the first call. Yeah, it sounds so simple, yet we constantly (laughs) have to coach ourselves to sell the good thing, fight Mm -hmm. the good fight. And that's really, I think where it starts to be uncomfortable is when you're trying to, like you said, maybe I really need this sale Mm -hmm. or maybe I don't have another solution to refer this person to. Mm -hmm. And so I think kind of dealing with what comes up around that is super important. Like Mm -hmm. you said, if you don't have enough referral partners to refer them to, that's probably a problem you need to solve so that you can- Go figure it out. So that you can, but you don't become aware of that until you're kind of put into some of these uncomfortable situations. And I love the three easy points to figure this out. And the fact that it allows us to show up powerful on the first call and confident. Yes. And it's such a compliment when you start to become a person that even though you sell a particular thing for your company, you start to be known as a resource Mm. to others for all kinds of things. So that's starting to happen more and more. Actually, I have a recent example of that. I have a client that has an event and she needs regular speakers in this very certain kind of topic. And she has kind of exhausted her local network. She's done a great job, but she's kind of exhausted her local network on the topic. But the events are over Zoom. So we realized, oh gosh, we could crowdsource this. We could get a much wider network. And so I was like a woman with a mission. I was like, we'll find more people for this. We'll figure this out. And just through relationships, through relationships of paying it forward, doing what's right, providing added value to other people at different stages in their careers, I started to put out feelers about other possible speakers. This is to speak for free. This is not for compensation. This would be a favor to my client. And I've been overcome by the number of people who said they would be interested in helping. And that is so gratifying because that's a way, again, think about our analogy of being a guide. 
Maybe for some of those people, getting in front of that audience is the tool to the next step in their journey, and it's mutually beneficial. So they're doing me a favor, but see, I'm also doing them a favor. Yeah. So being a connector that can make those things happen, I don't think you have to be that kind of person to sell, but I think if you see those going together and you realize, oh gosh, part of why I feel nervous on a sales call is because I don't have good alternatives to offer them if it's not me, that's something you can rectify. Yeah. And that's the best part is that we can fix it. All of these things that we've talked through, all of these barriers for us as salespeople, we can fix them. We can fix our mindset. We can go find more tools. We can change our processes and adapt. We can adjust our messaging. And to me, that's super encouraging. We could go forever on this topic, (laughs) and I certainly appreciate just how deep we've been able to go. But if there was one final thought you could leave our audience with regarding B2B sales, maybe it's something that you consistently see we're doing wrong. Maybe it's just an encouragement for what we could Mm -hmm. be looking at to do Mm -hmm. better. What would that be? I would ask you at any moment in your day when you are about to take action, hopefully it's a revenue generating activity, but maybe it's avoiding making the call or sending the email. If you could train yourself to say, what am I making this situation mean? Realize that people are meaning makers. We can help it as part of being a human. And I think part of what good humans do is they notice, hmm, I'm a meaning maker and I have power in what I decide is true. And so training yourself to notice before you act can be trajectory altering. That one's good. That resonates so much. Uh, resonates so much. Where can our audience connect with you more? I'm sure after this conversation, they're going to be reeling to get more <laughs> great information. So what's the best way for them to connect with you? Thank you. So on social media, I do have a presence on most platforms. I personally post every day on LinkedIn. So you know how on LinkedIn, the I know you'll have this in the show notes, but anyone who has not customized their LinkedIn URL needs to do this. You know, the, the last part should be in slash and your name if you can do it. So mine is Catherine Lee Brown at the end. LinkedIn is a great platform for me. And then everything, including links to purchase the book, And all of my services, group coaching, all the things I do is at my website, which is extraboldsales.com. Perfect. Also, we have mentioned this several times, so I think it goes without saying, but if there's one resource you can point people to, what resource do you want to tell them about? I do think that How Good Humans Sell is a great place to start. Particularly, I think that full-time sales professionals will enjoy it. They will feel that it's supplementing other things that they've learned with an interesting twist. If you are an owner who sells and you have never invested in sales training for yourself, this $15 book on Amazon could be pretty significant change for you and a great way to start. Much of what I have in my more expensive courses is in this book now. So it is really my love letter to the world of entrepreneurship because I love business. I love the means to an end that a profitable business brings people and I want them to be successful. And so the book is a great place to start. I can't vouch for that enough. Actually, this is how we connected. I was having a problem and we were looking for resources to solve that problem. And so I picked up How Good Humans Sell and it has been so impactful for me. I've only had it for 30 days and I have already closed more this month than I had in the past 
few months. Oh my goodness. So I can't tell you guys how <laughs> authentically I mean that this is such a great resource for you. So I hope that you go check it out. I hope today's conversation has been as impactful for you as it has for me. Catherine, I've enjoyed this conversation so much with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's just my absolute pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks. This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.